Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Alex Smola. Alex is Vice President and Distinguished Scientist at AWS AI. Alex, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hey, thanks very much for having me here. I'm really delighted to get the opportunity to talk to your listeners, and I hope everybody gets something useful out of it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I mentioned to you when we were chatting earlier that mm-hmm. I cornered you at a reInvent like just after you joined AWS. And in perfect and typical AWS fashion, you had nothing to do with a PR journalist type person. And so this is kind of a uh, achievement unlocked moment for me. It's been a long time coming. I've been looking forward to the opportunity to chat with you. So I am also excited. We're going to cover a bunch of the cool stuff you're working on from a, a research and AWS perspective and We'll touch on the event that you're heading up or participating in, the AWS ML Summit, Mm -hmm. towards the end. But to get us started, I would love to have you just share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning. Okay, so I'm actually a physicist by training, and there's this saying that physicists aren't good at anything, but you can use them for everything. (laughs) And I think that's probably how I ended up with machine learning. The slightly longer story is that when it came to doing my master's thesis, I looked around, didn't find anything terribly exciting at my university. And then I looked, maybe I can go and do my master's somewhere else. And this was at AT AT&T. Actually, Jan Lecan was the department head at the time, and Vladimir Vapnik was my master's advisor. And this was even at the time, a really great opportunity. So mind you, this was in 1995. Mm-hmm. So I went to AT&T and never looked back. And so I've taught computer science classes, but I've never really attended a proper computer science lecture in my life. Oh, wow. And sometimes <laughs> it shows in quite embarrassing ways. Any particular examples of that? <laughs> so for my PhD defense, I had to read up on what this P versus NP thing was all about. <laughs> because I was told, Alex, if you don't know that, they can fail you on your PhD. And so, of course, (laughs) I did read up. So I think by now I understand and also why it's really a useful and necessary concept. The good news is it still makes life exciting for me because I'm still learning new things in computer science even decades later. Oh, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, What's your role at Amazon, at AWS? So my role is to help us design and plan new algorithms, new tools, new services, to share them with our customers, to make sure we plan ahead strategically, for instance, through the lablets, where we invest in longer-term strategic research, and then also how to teach this to users. So for instance, the Dive into Deep Learning project, has 175 universities that teach from that now. And this is essentially also a way for us to give back to the community, to share with them and to help them use machine learning. Mm -hmm. So in other words, my role is to plan, but also if something's broken, okay, blame me for it. If it (laughs) works, credits to the team, obviously. That would be probably a good summary. 
Awesome. Awesome. So uh, yeah, I'd love to dig into some of the research-oriented things that you're working on. And one of the areas that I found really interesting in our earlier chat was your kind of perspective and take on deep learning on graphs and some of the work that you were doing there. So I'd love to kind of start there. Just to kind of contextualize, you, you gave this really you know, we, I've talked to a bunch of people about uh, graph machine learning and deep learning on graphs. And the examples that often come up are healthcare use cases and, of course, social networks. You gave this example, you know, to motivate the conversation around like learning uh, page rank. Yeah. You know, I'd love to have you walk through that example. I thought it was a great one. So, to some extent, graphs are really everywhere because pretty much all the data that's, for instance, being stored in relational databases, and maybe it's ultimately a graph. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's instantiated, it's it's stored as multiple tables, and then when a key is being shared, well, you know, there's your edge. Mm -hmm. But let's start with something very simple like PageRank. And I think we can all agree that this is a really, really impactful algorithm, if for no other reason that this is what got Google started. And it was really the brilliance of basically the co-founder, Solera Patience Sagebrin, together with their advisor Motvani, to come up with an algorithm of a random surfer of moving from one vertex to the next. And then, you know, you essentially work out the distribution of where a surfer would go. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, it was a stroke of genius to figure out that this is a great algorithm, but stroke of genius is very rare to find. On the other hand, if you look at what the algorithm actually does, it's very simple. It basically looks at a particular vertex in the web page graph, and it updates one number, namely the page rank, based on what the neighboring vertices have as the information. Actually, it's just all the incoming vertices, and then it's propagated out, but that's minor details, and there are different flavors of that. Mm -hmm. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could learn a function that does similar things to page rank if I just knew that certain pages are more interesting than others. So in this way, I wouldn't need two brilliant PhD students and a brilliant uh, professor to come up with a function that I can just learn from data. Mm -hmm. And learning on graphs is exactly that. So in a nutshell, it's really learning what one could consider vertex update functions, where in my graph, I learn how to update the state and the representation of that vertex based on its neighbors and based on a desired outcome. So for instance, if I want to detect fraud and I know that you're a good guy and I'm associated with you, then you would hope that corresponding information about trustworthiness is propagated and that I can learn this. On the other hand, if I'm up to no good and you're associated with me, then maybe some of that may rub off onto you Conversely. So this is one of the applications where deep learning on graphs is meaningful, but you can do so much more. Mm-hmm. You can extract knowledge graphs, you can reason over knowledge graphs, you can answer questions. Essentially, pretty much you should just go to KDD and take most <laughs> of their database and you know structure data problems, and you can recast them as graph problems and probably have quite some improvements out of it. Beyond page rank, are there problems that you've either done this recasting with or you think are, are interesting ones to further motivate the idea of thinking around graphs? Sure. So 
One rather recent paper that my team in Shanghai did is a mapping between, and it's basically an unsupervised extraction of knowledge graph from text. So usually generating knowledge graphs is really a costly process mm-hmm. because you need humans to annotate things. And for instance, you then get an annotation like Alex Amazon works at, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody needs to build those instra- extractors, crawl and do all the things. Now, there's a fair amount of work that people have done with regard to cycle consistent training. One of the first ones to propose this was Alyosha Efros. You may have seen examples of picks to picks or galloping zebras where or mapping satellite images into maps or sketching handbags and then having photos of handbags. You may have seen such demos in the past. And the idea is actually very simple. What you say is, I have two sets of modalities and they are paired in some ways. And I want to make sure that as I translate from one to the other, that what comes out of it looks like that desired modality. And if I translate back, I get something back that looks like the original. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I want to translate from English into French, well, whatever comes out of it, even if I don't have paired text, should look and read like French. And if I translate it back, then it should look and read like English. And furthermore, it better be very close to the original. Mm -hmm. So this is the cycle consistency, because what you do is you go, for instance, from English to French and then back to English, Mm -hmm. right? Or in our case, what the team did is we went from text to knowledge graphs and then back to text. And likewise, from knowledge graphs to text to knowledge graphs, and those two cycles need to be consistent insofar as you get meaningful knowledge graphs out of text or you can generate meaningful text out of knowledge graphs. Mm-hmm. But there's there are a couple of wrinkles to it, and that actually made it quite challenging because I can translate things like Alex, Amazon, and works at in many, many different ways. Mm-hmm. So I can, you know, just say, well, Alex works at Amazon or Amazon employs Alex or many other different ways of text. So there's not a one-to-one mapping. Right. So unlike many other works, you really need to take care of the full proper distribution of the mapping rather than just, you know, the pairing. Mm-hmm. And that gives you then if you use a proper variation, a lot encoder, good models that you can train, and you basically get accuracies that are very close to fully labeled problems. Mm-hmm. That's really exciting because generating knowledge graphs is costly, but it's also prerequisite if you then afterwards want to reason in more structured ways, if you want to be able, for instance, to edit a knowledge representation. So you have these two domains, text and knowledge graph, and you're able to go from one to the other and back. And we know that something like a variational autoencoder is great from going from one domain to the other. Is the application of graph just that one of those domains is a graph, or are we kind of using graph architecturally with the autoencoder to enable the, the cyclic consistency? Okay, so in this case one of the domains just so happens to be a graph. Okay, got it. But you still need to then actually compute gradients, right? And the thing is, just because it's a knowledge graph, I mean, you still have relations between the various entities. And mm-hmm. so you basically need to estimate whether an edge should occur or not. And so you need to reason over the graph per se as you generate the text. Got it. Right. So that's why you need deep learning for graphs, for instance, for this application. I just want to pick something that is 
significantly non-trivial because, yeah. you know, we've all done some reasoning for, on graphs, for instance, for fraud, for recommendation, personalization, and all of that. That's pretty much straightforward. Mm-hmm. The other challenge is more, how do we scale it up to very large problems and scale it up in a way where we actually still know what the model does? Mm-hmm. And some of our conversations around graphs, these Concepts like symmetry and isomorphism and these properties that allow you to manipulate graphs but still have them be fundamentally the same in some way come into play. It seems like that would make the you know the cyclic aspect of what you're trying to do particularly challenging. I think there's the aspect of symmetries arises from something quite different. And I think Quite honestly, I think it's been a little bit overplayed hmm. in graphs okay. because all you have is you have permutation symmetry of the neighbors. Mm-hmm. And so very long time ago, we wrote this paper on deep sets. Essentially, this was motivated by, okay, well, translation invariance, well, gives you a convolution. And so you can derive kind of nets from, you know, locality and translation invariance over images. Mm-hmm. Or then, you know, if you have stationarity in a time series, well, you get autoregressive models with the appropriate state. And so at some point I was wondering, you know, which other symmetries are there still out there that haven't been exploited yet? And then the simplest symmetry that you can think of is really the permutation symmetry. In other words, if I have a set where the order of the elements within the set doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. and that's what we got deep sets where you basically say, well, I have functions that operate on a set of elements in no particular order. Okay. And, well, why does this relate to graphs? Because, well, if I have a vertex and it has some neighbors, well, these are just neighbors. They're not in any particular order. So any function that is defined on a vertex and its neighbors needs to satisfy this permutation symmetry, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that then imposes certain functional forms that this vertex update function can only take. Now, why would you care about it? Because, I mean, this sounds like some fairly fancy mathematical theory. You know, who cares about group theory? (laughs) It's actually really useful because it means that your search space of what you need to design your function class at is much smaller. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, why do you care about translation invariance? Mm -hmm. Well, because a convnet is so much easier to design than a fully collected network, right? right? It has a lot fewer parameters. You can optimize very different chips. In the same way with a graph, If you have permutation symmetry, it means that you can actually get away with a lot fewer parameters because now it means that you cannot learn specific functions for specific neighbors. Mm -hmm. And that means your parameter space collapses now regardless of how many uh, or which order the neighbors are. Mm -hmm. So that simplifies life a lot. And then you can focus on other aspects in the implementation. Nice, nice. You mentioned in our our chat, you had a really interesting take on the relationship between language models and graphs. Uh, I'd love for you to jump into that. So this is the other reason why we are really looking at graphs. So if you look at what's currently going on with language models, it seems to be that bigger is better. And there is, I think, a very conspicuous arms race in terms of who can train the largest language model. And that's controversial as well. Yeah. So I think there is a one good thing is that it's a little bit self-limiting because somebody Mm -hmm. has to pay for this. And at some point, even large companies will quite happily decide not to spend unreasonable amounts of money on training those models. I 
I'm not so sure whether it's really controversial on the energy expenditure, because ultimately it's not like you train this model and then you throw it away, but you actually will go and use it a lot. I mean, it's essentially, you can think of it like an infrastructure investment. You build and train this model once, and then you can go and deploy it in many different applications. So I don't think it's really that much of an issue in terms of energy use, mm-hmm. unless, of course, you train hundreds of models, but then probably your finance department will tell you that this is a bad idea. Kind of back to your self-limiting point. But what's more important, I think, is, is that those models are essentially large opaque blobs, and people have struggled to deal with really being able to edit and to manipulate and to update the knowledge that's stored in those models, mm-hmm. right? So let me give you an example that's maybe not so controversial. Was Abraham Lincoln a vampire hunter? Mm-hmm. Well, most people will probably draw a blank, like, what is Alex talking <laughs> about? Well, there is actually a B-grade or maybe C-grade movie, Hollywood movie, in which Abraham Lincoln played a vampire hunter. So now if you ask the model, well, was Abraham Lincoln a vampire hunter? It may very well be that the answer will be yes, because you just so happen to train on that data set. Mm -hmm. Because there isn't really much curation. Now, if you add to that the fact that people on the internet do not always write the pure unadulterated truth, you are starting to get into a real problem of having to somehow curtail, prune, and reason over what those models produce. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't train on a large amount of text also of questionable origin, but it just means that when the model speaks, you need to make sure that what it produces is reasonable and sound. So basically, you want to make sure that your decoder is well-constrained and that the knowledge base that it reasons over is also at least curatable. Mm -hmm. Now, one way of doing this is if you put more emphasis into a structured graph representation of knowledge rather than having everything in a giant 20, 30 layer deep transformer model that stretches over maybe a billion, well, a trillion parameters now, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. And a trillion parameters requires at 16-bit precision around eight P4 servers. So that's probably not something that most customers would want to use. Mm -hmm. Instead of that, you would want to have something that actually fits into a size that is economically feasible for customers, right? Ultimately, we are in the business of helping our customers solve their problems, Mm -hmm. right? So our customers' problems are our problems, and our job is to make their job easier. Yeah. So therefore, if we give them Big Berta, then that may not necessarily solve the problems that they have. Mm-hmm. Now, you're making it an equivalence to some degree or another between language models and graphs that they could ultimately solve the same problems or some of the same problems. Is this broadly accepted or, you know, or known to be true? Or is this you know, speculative to some degree? Is there some theoretical work that needs to be done to, to demonstrate this? Where, where are we? How grounded is that conjecture or, or proposal? So there's early days. I would say this cycle consistency training is an example where you now have a knowledge graph that can clearly produce text. We know, I think, reasonably well how to reason over knowledge graphs. I don't think it's going to be knowledge graphs all the way, 
But at least you want to have some mechanism of being able to inject and edit knowledge that your language model reasons over that can be manipulated separately from just a very big fat transformer model. Mm -hmm. Now, whether this is the ultimate solution, I don't know. I think there is going to be a lot of interesting work in terms of designing meaningful structures, maybe how to sparsify things, how to disentangle different representations. So there's a lot of good work right now, and that's actually what makes this field so exciting. Mm -hmm. We'll find out probably in a year or two whether this bet really pays off in the way that I hope it will. What needs to happen or or what's the benchmark? How do you know if the bet is paying off is there? Would you be applying graph-based or knowledge graph type of model to the same type of task as a language model? So language modeling, or uh, are you looking for different things? It's a supplement. And to some extent, you would want to use that in some of the products and services that are then being offered. Ah, so if you can deliver a service that you might take a off-the-shelf language model with, but instead a smaller, kind of more compact knowledge graph, that's your benchmark for success. That, that might be one benchmark for success. I mean, mm -hmm. there are other ways how you can supplement a language model with knowledge. For instance, a really nice paper that Kyung Yun Cho published a couple of years ago was in the context of search engine enhanced language models. What they did is they basically issued queries in addition to whatever text was being produced. And they're thus able then to produce machine translation that was much higher fidelity because it was able to also use essentially translation memories. So translation memories are what happens when you do machine translation and you have maybe some other reference documents or other reference translations around, and you want to, to use those to enhance your translation model. And so what you can do is you can basically then have your NMT system, so neural machine translation system, and you fold it with translation memories in order to get high accuracy. And in the same way, you can fold a language model with a graph and with possibly other things in order to enhance it, in order to allow you to steer those models into directions that will make sense. Mm, interesting, interesting. So I think it's a very exciting perspective where this is going. Stay tuned for the next year or two. <laughs> nice. You also spend quite a bit of time focused on AutoML and research in that domain. Can you share a little bit about what you're up to there? Right. So AutoML, I think, is a really key component in lowering the bar to access for machine learning. And it's a key component in multiple ways. So we all know the notion of technical debt, right? So it's mm -hmm. basically you decide to live with something that's maybe not optimal, and then you need to keep on paying a price for it later on. And as you accumulate technical debt, well, at some point, it'll slow you down so much that you mm -hmm. can't really build anything new again. Now, the good news is that all of this can be nicely automated by having an automail system that actually keeps on improving as science advances. So that's what we're doing with Autoglue. And we just, whenever somebody comes up with a new model, well, we add it to our inventory of models. Secondly, we automatically adapt and perform you know, all the model tuning, the stacking and the bagging and all the pieces directly such that the model improves and adjusts to new data as it comes in. 
The last thing is, and this is very different in what we're doing relative to pretty much every other automail system. Everybody else hunts for snowflakes. They want to have that one single best shiny model, whether it's a deep network or a boosted decision tree or whatever. And maybe they tune overall the different models with hyperparameter tuning and so on. But they basically want that snowflake. Instead, what we do is we just throw them all in because we found that a wide range of models, very diverse models, stacked, and then often also stacked, leads to much better accuracy. Mm -hmm. It makes the models much more robust. It gives you much better uncertainty estimates. And here's the other thing. We only fail if all of the base models fail, because no matter what the implementation of the model is, sometimes the code fails for bizarre reasons. Now, if you have five different models at your disposal, the RTML system will only fail if all five underlying models fail. Are you referring to failing at the search to find the model, or are you suggesting an AutoML system that produces composite ensembled models that has a lesser chance of failing in production when it sees some out-of-distribution data? It's much more trivial than that. Okay. It's the code just core dumping or not converging, failing to produce results, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you can be more concrete in this idea, assertion about the snowflake. What does that mean? Is the Are you saying that a lot of the energy is placed on kind of exotics like neural architecture search and things that are particularly complex and your approach is also looking at simple things? Or are you saying that the auto ML systems tend to be tuned for one particular type of model and you think the the better approach is to first focus on finding the right model? Like what's the... Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here and Uh to some extent it's... I mean, there are probably 10 reasonable RTML systems out there that you may want to use. So I am bound to not do everybody justice just because there's a wide range of what people do. Yeah. But the classical setting goes as follows. Well, you know, you want RTML to, for instance, adjust the learning rate, whether you do early stopping, the depth of the number of layers if you have a deep network or, you know, some other parameters. I mean, there are usually half a dozen or more parameters. I mean, or for instance, for a kernel method, which kernel do you use? Which optimizer do you use? Basically, there are a lot of different knobs that you could adjust. Mm -hmm. And this is what people typically think about when they say AutoML, that it'll give you that one single model back. And in some cases, there are perfectly legitimate reasons why you may want that. Mm-hmm. There is a separate part, namely NAS, so Neural Architecture Search. And that's a very reasonable thing to do every once in a while, mm-hmm. but it's super costly. Yeah. So basically, you want to do that if you want to come up with that new computer vision backbone model. And you mm-hmm. do that once, and then you use it in many, many different applications because you want to amortize the high cost. So the average user probably isn't going to do NAS. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's a really, really important problem, if it's an embedded solution where maybe you can reduce the cost for your chip by a significant amount, the economics of it may very much make it worth it. Or let's say you want to deploy in a certain class of mobile phones with a certain processor, and you want to optimize, let's say, for MediaTek versus 
Qualcomm, and maybe you want to optimize for a specific version of the Adreno, mm-hmm. then yeah, for that, it makes sense. But mm-hmm. in many other cases, NAS isn't so much what, as an end user, you may want to invest your compute dollars in. Yeah. Instead, you may be better off taking a convex combination of maybe five or six models, and then you may want to go and stack them. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you may even want to stack them, combine them with non-deep models. So for instance, what we found with text and tabular is that those typical two tower models actually don't work so well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a bit of context about two towers or multiple tower models. One of the ideas is you go and take your tabular data, you embed it in some way, run it through maybe a couple of fully connected layers until you get some representation. Then you do the same thing, let's say, for the text. And then in the end, you just fuse everything together and you have maybe another layer. Mm-hmm. That works okay, but you can improve on it significantly. And we've actually got a KDD submission in the pipeline, so I don't know whether it'll go through or not. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. But essentially, what works a lot better is if you fuse a little bit earlier and if you then go and use other models in a stacking manner on top of it. So for instance, you may very well then end up creating a Frankensteinian model that uses a BERT embedding and some tabular embedding and then runs a decision tree on top of that. And then on top of that, it ends up stacking nearest neighbors. Right. Hmm. Now, hmm. most people will be quite horrified at the thought of building such a complex <laughs> system because it takes forever to run. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can then go and distill this back down to an architecture that you're much more comfortable with in order to get the speed, but also the accuracy of the original model. Meaning a la compression or a technique like that? Yeah. So the difference, though, is that you now have some black box object, which is your horribly Mm -hmm. designed, very complicated RTML model. And then you perform function approximation Mm -hmm. to whatever target architecture that you want. That can be Mm -hmm. a deep network, it could be a decision tree or whatever. Yeah. And so now all you do is you basically have stimuli, so dot covariates being fed into both models, and you then minimize the error between the two, between the teacher and the student. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a couple of tricks that you need to worry about, because if you just go and train on the data that you trained the original model on, then well, you're basically not going to do much better. Mm -hmm. The reason is simply that, well, there's only so much information that was in the original data and all you then get is essentially like maybe slightly cleaner labels from what we have before. What you can do instead is you, because I mean, this gives you the one over square root sample size rate of convergence and you can't, there's no way around it. This is math, right? Right. So how do you cheat on the math? Well, you just make more data. Mm-hmm. And you make more data by sampling data that's similar to the one that was in your training set. So you create a synthetic data, or if you have additional data, well, that's of course perfect, but otherwise you can essentially synthesize mm-hmm. some data. This allows you to cheat on the one over square root sample size bound, mm-hmm. but there's a price. You pay for a bit of bias. Mm-hmm. And then you go and design an effective Gibbs sampler to make sure that your bias isn't too big, And this gives you distillations that essentially lose next to no accuracy, but are then orders of magnitude faster. Mm -hmm. 
I've got to imagine as you increase the complexity of your modeling step here, you're also thinking from a research perspective around like, what are the implications of that? You touched on some of it, but like, you know, what kind of guarantees do you have in terms of convergence? So those kinds of things you're looking at? Yeah. So, so, so in terms of model selection and guarantees, I think we're actually in a really good situation now compared to where we were like maybe about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So if I look back at my PhD thesis, maybe about 40% of the thesis was proving fairly advanced theorems in Banach spaces and working on covering numbers and metric entropy of spaces and essentially a lot of beautiful math. <laughs> and I was super proud at the time because our bounds were so much better than whatever else people have before. So before that, it was basically VC dimension or then scale sensitive versions of this. Mm-hmm. And what we had was really nicely, you know, data adaptive and all of that. And mm-hmm. we proved good spectral bounds and all of that. And then we went on, this was, I was doing a postdoc at the time. We tried to use it for something as simple as a two sample test. So two sample test is basically, I have two sets of data, are those two drawn from the same distribution? So this is what, for instance, in a GANs, in a generative adversarial network, the adversary does. It tries to distinguish two sets. This was before GANs and we used, you know, spectral methods for it. Anyway, so fine, we used that and we applied all this beautiful theory and the bound was particularly tight and we ran it and it failed to work at all. Mm-hmm. In spite of the tight bounds. Exactly. So (laughs) essentially, we did the equivalent of trying to drive using our seatbelt. Right. (laughs) So it's... Equations meet real world. Yeah. So what turned out to be the case is that a lot of more empirical estimates were much, much more usable. And so in order to make those tests actually practically usable, we had to give up on some of the mathematical purity and look at asymptotic statistics and other estimates in order to get something very accurate done. And actually Arthur Gretton, who was my partner in crime for a lot of this work, I mean, he's still working on these problems now and it's basically been a very fertile research agenda for the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think what I hear you saying is that you're willing to sacrifice the traditional mathematical rigor for throwing data at the problem and kind of getting your comfort statistically. Is that? Almost. It's not, it's not quite. Okay. Uh, I think the beauty of the situation now is that we have a lot more data. And what you can do is you can derive guarantees that are a lot more data adaptive. Mm-hmm. So this is the thing that I think has really qualitatively changed from what it was maybe 10, 20 years ago that by now, in order to get guarantees, you're much more willing to... So cross-validation is a simple example of that, where you're setting some data aside and then you get actually reasonably good bounds you know, at rate one over squared sample size between the error that you estimate on a validation set and what really happens in reality later. Of course, this goes out of the window if I start cheating by tuning my model on the validation set, right? Right. So this is a little bit like the kid who goes and tries to practice for his SAT test. And so he has, you know, all those existing SAT tests available and he goes and studies exactly the things that are written in previous exams. Mm -hmm. 
And while this is going to be somewhat useful, it may not give him the full truth because he's at some point starting to overfit to the historical SAT tests, mm -hmm. right? So we know that the new tests are probably going to be similarly distributed, but they're not going to be quite the same. Yeah, yeah. So probably the smart thing would be to do some of this, but then to leave out one test that's very, very recent, and then just run it in the end and see whether you do well on that. And if you do, then okay, you can probably sleep well. Hey, by the way, don't use this as actual advice for for your high school exam, so don't blame me for it. But <laughs> okay, maybe I, I personally would do it, but I didn't go to high school in, in the United States. So I was in Germany. But basically, don't overfit on your validation set or something like that. But the good thing is yeah. we now have so much data right. that a thousand or two thousand observations among friends isn't a big deal, right? <laughs> Whereas 10, 20 years ago, this was painful. I mean, there yeah. are still cases where this is. So for medical data, a thousand people having some rare disease is, is a terrible thing. And this, these are cases where you're happy that maybe the data set is small because it means not so many people died. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, we are now in a situation where we have a lot more data, we have a lot more computation. So we can use things like cross-validation, we can use bagging, we can use nested versions of validation approaches such that you get the nice conditional independence for the next level of the stacker to avoid overfitting in this case. So you can do all of those things and they will help you to get much higher confidence estimates than what you could have done by just sitting down and proving a theorem on the general properties of the spectral embeddings of some algorithm. Got it. Got it. So, so we're actually living in a good time. <laughs> nice. There's one more research topic that I want to dive into with you, and that's some of your work on causality and causal modeling. But actually, before we do that, I want to chat briefly about the ML Summit, which you've got coming up. You know, I'd love to hear maybe a little bit about the event and its origins, and we'll talk a little bit about what you're excited about there. So this entire thing started actually as a, well, I don't know whether it's a crazy idea or an ambitious idea at reInvent in 2016. Mm -hmm. And we had two or three hours of like a mini event where we grabbed a couple of faculty friends and asked them to give talks. And I mean, reInvent is the biggest conference I've ever been to. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I've not been out very much, but it seems to grow at an exponential rate. Unfortunately, last year was not in person, uh, but it's the thing where it takes over a large part of the Las Vegas Strip and you basically have nerds everywhere. Okay, so it's, it's, it's an awesome <laughs> event. But what happened is, so we, we had this machine learning talk fest and mm -hmm. people were sitting, camping out outside the lecture theater for two, three hours before the event trying to get in. Mm -hmm. So it was clearly signal that this was something that people would enjoy. We weren't so sure because these were more technical talks. Mm -hmm. And so the following year, we did more and more. And so until this year, well, we've decided, okay, to actually graduate this out as a separate event. Mm -hmm. And for instance, I mean, last year, you, if you went to reInvent, I mean, as in, if you attended the live streams, you would have seen that Swami Shiva Brahmanian got, so my manager got, you know, a full keynote. So mm -hmm. machine learning has clearly become a very important ingredient in building successful things that our customers want. Yeah. And so we broke it out this year, and this is the first attempt. 
okay, maybe with the timing, it didn't go quite so well because it's also the NeurIPS deadline this week. <laughs> but actually, I mean, we tried to do a good job. It's just that what happened is that NeurIPS moved that deadline by one week because of the things going on in India. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, we would have made sure that it doesn't clash. But yeah, so right now people have to choose between listening to this or polishing their papers. <laughs> but I think we have some speakers that are really delightful. So, for instance, Andrew Ng is coming and, I mean, he has a busy schedule. Uh, Coursera went public end of March. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I mean, he has really been a great mentor for a lot of machine learning startups and overall companies. He's done a great work at Google, then at Baidu, and then beyond what he's now doing at Deep Learning. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously also great faculty in Stanford. So he's a wonderful colleague. And I think this is probably one of the highlights to have him. Mm-hmm. Something else that I'm really excited about is this Ryan Tipshirani's talk. And this is probably the one talk that will affect most people the most. Uh, because he's going to talk about essentially what his, he and his team, so Ronnie Rosenfeld at uh, CMU, have done in the context of COVID-19 forecasting. So this is very much a view from the trenches view presentation. Mm -hmm. So Ryan is a hardcore theorist who basically decided this was the thing that would help the most. And essentially, they pretty much became the clearinghouse for, well, COVID forecasts, working with pretty much everybody and supplying guidance data to the administration. Mm -hmm. They're having a lot, an easier job now uh, than previously. But there are lots of challenges in how to get data. So, for instance, what was the case last year is that a lot of hospitals would send emails to report um, COVID-19 numbers because the powers that be decided not to set up a database. Mm-hmm. Now, this is time-consuming and annoying. That's, that's one thing, and that's the minor issue. The bigger issue is that It means that you have data that is not always accurate, that needs to be rewritten. So therefore, you're predicting not based on all the accurate data that you should be having right now, Mm -hmm. but based on the accurate data maybe up to about three, four weeks ago, and then the recent data is sort of kind of Mm accurate-ish. Right. And doesn't make for the best predictions. It makes the statistical problem quite challenging. Mm -hmm. So, So this is a really important talk was he, he's going to explain a lot of what happened essentially in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Right. Awesome. Awesome. That's probably why I'm, why I'm most excited about that. So we will include a link to that talk in the, or not just the talk, the entire event in the show notes page. It's June 2nd and 3rd. I think there are separate kind of schedules for Europe and Asia and and folks in different time zones. And we will link to those. But as promised, I want to jump back into this research stuff, which is great. And specifically some of the work you're doing on causality. This has been a topic that clearly has been around. But over the past couple of years in the machine learning community, it's just been on fire just in terms of popularity and and interest. And I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about what you're doing in that space. So there's an entire team actually in Tübingen, and that's being led by two excellent scientists. One good friend of mine, Bernard Cholkov. So he's Max Planck director and 
besides all the other things that he's doing, he also helps Amazon on the causality research there. Mm-hmm. And then the resident expert, Dominic Yansing, and obviously there, there's an entire team that stands behind that. Mm-hmm. And they're using causal models to infer, for instance, why is my server not working? Or why is my supply chain not doing the things that it should be doing? Now, this has meaningful product impact. So for instance, if you're using Lookout for Metrics, and then you're getting some of the causal tools for it when you want to understand not just why is there, that, that there's an anomaly, but you want to have an explanation why something went wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, it's actually quite interesting because a lot of their tools are quite fundamental or simple in terms of, well, they don't necessarily use lots of fancy deep networks to do the modeling, but they really think very hard about what the underlying questions are in order to answer this. So for instance, you may want, if you get data and you have some form of a dependency graph, you may want to ask a question like, if the data has changed, why has it changed? And now, well, what's fun there is you can actually, if you have a direct graphical model, so as a nice causal model, you can actually go and then look at individual clicks and try to identify the one that has changed such that you don't just say, hey, look, my entire world has changed, but you can actually work backwards and say, well, this component has changed and here is how it has. Mm-hmm. So this is the type of answers that you can get by using causality. Now, there are a couple of different flavors of what you can use. And I think most of us are used to the graphical model, Judea Pearl style mm-hmm. causal analysis. There's actually a slightly more pragmatic one, and this is called Granger causality. Granger? Granger. Okay. Yeah. So there's a funny story to that. So Clive Granger, and so he got the Nobel Prize in 2003, actually, for his work. So he, at some point, was asked to come up with some estimators for causality. Mm-hmm. And so he went to Norbert Wiener, physicist, and had him explain a little bit what he thought about things. Essentially, he came up with a model that goes more or less as follows. Let's say I have time series X and Y mm-hmm. indexed over time, so XT and YT. And then I have some other parameters, WT. So W is essentially auxiliary parameters. Mm-hmm. And what you want to do is you want to find out whether X causes Y or Y causes X, mm-hmm. or at least whether they causally affect each other. And so what you can ask is essentially, for instance, does XT affect YT plus one or does YT affect XT plus one? So basically going forward in time. Mm-hmm. So the temporal aspect is quite important there. Okay. And so what you can do is you can basically try to predict XT plus one just using the auxiliary variables or you can go and try to predict it using the auxiliary variables and also yt, mm-hmm. right? So, and now if my prediction is better after I use this additional variable, then I can say, well, you know, there's some causal information in there. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's also heavily dependent on the auxiliary data, namely wt, and essentially the analysis, and that's a little bit the Achilles heel, but you can do, you can reason well about it is if I just throw lots of context at it, and the context doesn't actually allow me to predict things, then it really must be that other variable that was causal. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is all done without the mechanics of interventions and the like yeah, on the, the exactly. graphical approach. Exactly. So the idea is really, if it allows me to predict 
then there must be a causal structure in it. Mm-hmm. So this way I can have, you know, things like X causing Y and Y causing X and still being able to reason over it. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot, lot more pragmatic and operational. And the funny thing is that when Granger went on to explain this to people, they went like, yeah, that's not real causality. It's just Granger causality. <laughs> that's literally what happened. And so mm-hmm. the name stuck. And I think it's a very nice operational approach because it gives you very concrete strategies of how do you establish whether some, you know, such dependency happens. Now, do we care about it in Amazon? Yes, for many, many cases. I mean, obviously, you want to understand, for instance, within your supply chain, why something happens or doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. You want to understand when you look at various metrics and why something goes wrong you might want to use similar things overall for systems identification. So there's a lot of really exciting work that happens there. You also want to use it, for instance, for testing procedures. Some of this, as I said, for instance, look out for metrics is in an explicitly usable public service. Some of the other things happen more behind the scenes Mm -hmm. just because, I mean, machine learning is a spice, right? It's not the main dish. In most cases, machine learning is what makes the main dish tasty. But Mm -hmm. if you just use machine learning as the only thing that you're offering as a product, then you're essentially only helping other people then use that somewhere else. And, you know, in some cases, that's perfectly reasonable. But it's just as important to make a lot of other services smart Mm -hmm. and adaptive. And that's really what machine learning can help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And causality in particular is one of those tools that are quite subtle and you do need a reasonable amount of skill to understand exactly why and what happens. Is that that skill as well as the kind of machinery that's been built up around the Perl style causality, is it equally established for Granger causality? I imagine it benefits from the simplicity quite a bit, but even things like libraries like Pyro for probabilistic programming, does that apply equally well to Granger or is it So you need slightly different tools. I would say watch the space. That's that's all I can say right now. I think good things will happen. This is about as specific as I can be without getting myself or the team in trouble, but watch the space. Got it. Basically, there's still a bit of thinking that goes into, you know, how to make it very usable. So, I mean, to give, give an example why this is, a little bit dangerous territory or can be, you may have heard of SHAP, right? The Shapley value for explainability. Mm -hmm. And so this is a great paper and great work. A lot of people use SHAP to explain why certain inputs cause a certain output. Now, it turns out that actually the code is correct, but the math in the paper isn't quite So this is actually funny because the approximation is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so the tubing and team actually wrote the follow-up saying, hey, your code is correct, the math in your paper is, and then here's why. But it has a lot to do with the fact that which variables you condition on when you look at an intervention. Or in other words, if I have a light bulb and a switch, Mm -hmm. and I observe that when the light bulb's on, the switch is on, and when the light bulb's off, the switch is off, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, if I manipulate the switch, the light bulb goes on. But if I go and smash the light bulb, the switch doesn't go off, mm-hmm. right? And so 
if you look at interventions, you need to be careful over which variables you stratify when you do the analysis. And so in the actual Shapley code, it was done correctly, but the initial analysis was improvable. So this is exactly the level where you need reasonably well-trained teams of scientists to Mm -hmm. actually look at that because the average engineer will probably, I mean, it's, it's hard to package it in a form that you don't end up with conclusions that may hurt you in the end. I think what I hear you saying with this example is that the Shapley paper was based on kind of this, the machinery of interventions and it's easy to get it wrong. And so something simpler is better. And that's why you're excited about this Granger causality and stuff to come. Yep. I think that's a pretty good summary. Okay. Got it. Cool. Well, Alex, it has been amazing catching up with you and learning a little bit about some of the stuff that you're working on. Looking forward to tuning into you virtually at the ML Summit and catching up in a year or two to talk about new causality tools and language models based on graphs and all kinds of cool stuff that we talked about here. Thanks. Thanks for having me and have a good day. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.